Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland. We are a podcast that brings you on a rocky journey across the dark north coast Scottish seas at night time. It's very dangerous. I'm Annie, your bright shining archivist. And I'm Jenny, your unexpected wind, bringing waves of white horses that play happily with frolicking dolphins. In this episode, we're looking at the lighthouses of the north of Scotland. Now there's a wealth of lighthouse heritage in Scotland. We have coasts built for lighthouses. One of my favourite snippets of information I found whilst we were researching this episode was from a Gaelic oral history from a woman named Kate Shaw who was born in 1870. Kate told us of warnings from old traditions. It was said that before a death, a ghostly candlelight could be seen a flickering premonition of darkness to come. If you saw candlelight, and nowhere around you could you see an explainable source for this shimmering flame, then it was a foretelling that someone close to you was going to be crossing over from life to death. Now there was a man on the Isle of Barra who believed this with all his heart, and so was fearful whenever he saw an unexplained light in the darkness. It's funny imagining the world before electricity when phantom lights at night would be much more noticeable and strange. I think a likely cause would just be moonbeams bouncing off a reflective surface. Or perhaps just a person travelling with a lamp or who had lit a fire for some warmth. Well, our man in Barra didn't know any of these tips and tricks that you got, Annie. (laughs) For he started seeing an unexplained light near his house, far out in the distance. And he was certain it was a premonition, that some drastic change would soon be upon him and his loved ones. Night after night the light returned and the man's fortunes, they weren't going so well at the time. And so this ghostly light started to worry him more and more. In hopes of a better life and to protect his family from the impending death, the barman just upped and emigrated. He took his whole family with him, fleeing the boundaries of the prophetic candlelight, foretelling a coming of tragedy. And as ridiculous as this does seem, the man was half right, for change was on the way, and the light he was seeing was a message from the future. He just didn't stick around long enough to see what this light was telling him of. In the spot where the light had been dancing in the darkness, haunting and tormenting this poor barra man, a lighthouse had been built. It was not a death candle at all, but a glimpse of a lighthouse that would be protecting the lives of fishers and sailors off the coast for generations to come. Yes, what I absolutely love about this tale is that it blends the old superstitions into the modern technology of the lighthouse. What I like about this tale is that the man thought that emigrating would be safer than staying next to this flashing light. Clearly, he has not seen the survival rates of those ships. (laughs) Especially before the lighthouses. (laughs) But the oral history also told us of a different case where a lighthouse was built in a place where ominous lights had been seen before. So this barra man isn't a unique example. 
And what I find really interesting about this is it makes lighthouses seem like they have an extra belonging on Scottish coasts. Anything that comes through prophecy surely has to have greater importance. And the lighthouses were transformative for the safety of folks at sea. I love the switch of the lights from bringing darkness and death to bringing light and safety. What a glow up, Annie. (laughs) We have a coast that was destined to be sparkling with signals of safety. Scotland's lighthouses illuminate the edges of the country, warning of the perilous rocks all along the coastline. There's something really comforting about the blinking, protective beams of lighthouses. And along with Selkies and Sailors, they have become symbolic of coastal communities. Bell Rock Lighthouse is perhaps the most outstanding of all Scottish lighthouses. Construction started in 1807, making this beauty the oldest standing sea-washed lighthouse in the world. So a sea-washed lighthouse is one that stands out alone in the ocean, detached from the mainland or the island it protects. They can also be called wave-washed, which I think I like a bit more because it sounds a little bit whimsical and also like a kind of mermaid hairstyle. Well, as long as it's not washed up, we're all good. The tale of Bell Rock and the lighthouse upon it starts long before Robert Stevenson, undisputed king of Scottish lighthouses, and his workers toiled for four years in the open ocean to build it. Long ago, back in the 14th century, back before this rock was even known as Bell Rock, it was causing the abbot of our broth a lot of issues. See, his abbey was close to the ocean, and he became increasingly worried about the number of shipwrecks that were happening about 11 miles out off the coast, on a sneaky reef made of rock called Inchcape. This rocky expanse lay exposed for only two hours during low tide, but when the tide was high, it lurked close underneath the surface, invisible to the naked eye, but treacherous to all who sailed over it on their way to the firth. To protect the worthy men of the sea, the abbot raised the funds to commission the construction of a great sturdy bell. The bell was attached to a buoy, which in turn was attached to the rock. And when the gales blew and the visibility was as good as gone, the bell would be ringing out strong and sure, warning all on the waves of the danger that they were near. Many lives were saved, and the abbot was praised for his pious good doing. But all this praising ticked off a pirate who frequented the area, Sir Ralph the Rover. Ralph the Rover? He sounds more like a football mascot, not a bloodthirsty and murderous pirate. Well, he's, it's true, it's no Blackbeard, that's for sure. In fact, legend has it that old Ralph couldn't grow a beard at all. All he had were tiny wisps to protect him from the whipping winds of the ocean. And that's why he was so darn bitter. I've never read that you're legend, just, Jenny. You're just not checking all the sources, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> But this bitterness led him to do something truly evil. For one calm day, he ordered his crew to sail out to the bold sea bell. And once close enough, he cut the rope of the bell. And it let out one last toll as it fell into the waves and sunk out of sight. 
He and his crew then sailed on to distant shores to do what they did best, steal stuff. Oh no, so did they recover the bell or get a new bell? Uh, nope, the abbot was broken-hearted when he heard, but he was also broke. He didn't have the funds or the ability to get them for another bell. And so the rock became as treacherous as it once was, and many more men perished from its strikes. How terrible! What an evil man Ralph the Rover was indeed! (laughs) (laughs) He was, yes, and it was terrible. But, as they say in Germany... Fate has a funny way of biting the snail on his bottom. For years later, when old Ralph the Rover finally returned to the waters of Scotland, his beard somehow worse than it was before, a terrible fog came over the sea. They could no longer see the direction they were heading or even the bow of the boat from the stern. Oh, if only they had something to guide them through the fog, Annie! Like perhaps a bell, maybe. Don't be ridiculous, Annie. There hasn't been a bell there for years. Everyone knows that. (laughs) (laughs) But as they sailed through the wall of mist, they struck Bell Rock and the ship was completely destroyed. Wow, so Sir Ralph the Rover got his comeuppance in the end. Yes, he did. But this story that you're telling, Jenny, it's a Mm marvellous legend, but Mm -hmm, you know it's not true at all, right? Well, technically speaking, it has to be a kind of bit true because the rock is known as Bell Rock. So there's like 10% truth in that tale. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a mythology that was born from a ballad written by Robert mm. Southey. Uh, and the ballad itself is called Inchcape Rock, which kind of shows you that the rock wasn't called Bell Rock until the ballad was written. Now... Mm. <laughs> we don't really like Robert Southey as a historical figure because he was a conservative in the early 1800s when the conservatives were really focused on trying to prevent working class people from being able to vote so they were the Ralph the Rovers of their days you might say however despite his bad points of everything yes Robert Scythe does write an absolutely sterling ballad, and it went like this. So Ralph the rover tore his hair, he cursed himself in his despair. The waves rush in on every side, the ship is sinking beneath the tide. But even in his dying fear, one dreadful sound could the rover hear. A sound as if the Inchcape bell, the devil below, was ringing his knell. Ah, okay, and the devil ringing his knell. Uh, Knell is a solemn bell ringing, so usually for funerals or deaths or sad affairs. But why didn't they just rhyme that with hell? Ringing in hell. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds way, way better. So the first marking for Bell Rock was not actually this bell of the legends. This shallow reef was sinking ships each winter. And after the disastrous sinking of HMS York and all her crew, which would have been over 200 men, it was decided that a lighthouse simply had to be constructed on Bell Rock. And lo and behold, who had already proposed a plan for such a lighthouse? Robert Stevenson. Stevenson is the granddaddy of Scottish lighthouses. And I mean that quite literally. Over a 150-year period, Stevenson... Three of his sons and many of his grandsons 
built the majority of the Scottish lighthouses we have today. So Robert was at the start of a lighthouse building dynasty. One grandson, however, was not to follow in the lighthouse building traditions of those before him. And that was Robert Louis Stevenson, who became the author of books like Treasure Island and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But our older Robert, our lighthouse Robert, who we're talking about today, actually learnt his trade from his stepfather, Thomas Smith, who was a civil engineer with the Northern Lighthouse Board. So technically, it should be the Smith Lighthouse Dynasty. Ah, potato, potato. The name may not be the same, Annie, but the engineering skills were certainly passed down. And no feat required greater skill than the construction of Bell Rock Lighthouse. The lighthouse was actually the first that Robert built without his stepfather, but he was sort of supervised by another man named John Rennie, who was appointed to ensure the project went according to plan, and with whom Stevenson did not get on well with at all. In fact, during the construction, he would deliberately waste Rennie's time in order to keep him off his back by sending letters filled with highly, highly technical questions to which Rennie would painstakingly reply to each and every one. And Annie, when I found this out, I felt like this is something you do to keep me busy sometimes. (laughs) Well, Jenny, it's cheaper than Prosecco. (laughs) Plus, how else am I going to get the answers to my equations? Anyway, I found a wonderful description of the lighthouse from just before its completion in the August of 1810. Now, a letter was written to the Caledonian Mercury newspaper by a gentleman engaged in the undertaking of building the lighthouse. The building is 100 feet in height. Its diameter at the base is 42 feet. The solid contents of the being about 8,000 tonnes. The ascent to the door is by a kind of rope ladder and the inside is laid out in apartments for the lightkeepers and in rooms for the stores. These communicate by means of wooden ladders. The building terminates with the light room. The foundation course is on level with low water of spring tides. The sea seldom rises more than 16 feet on the building. Yet in the month of June last, when the lighthouse was 70 feet high, the workmen were actually beat off the walls by the sea spray. If such then were the effects of a summer gale, What must a storm in winter be at the Bell Rock? The sea will no doubt be flying over the light room. Well, this author was right. The storms can be vicious out in the North Sea. And in winter storms, the lighthouse can be engulfed by waves and spray. But for 210 years and counting, the lighthouse has faced these storms without so much as a chipped corner, Jenny. Ah, This is because it was constructed to the highest standard. Stevenson knew that top quality work and material was required if the structure was to last. And the same with his reputation. This was a huge project for him to prove himself. And he was no slippery workman. (laughs) To ensure the longevity and safety of the structure, it was built with the highest quality Aberdonian granite. Aberdeen is often called the Granite City or, more endearingly, the Silver City, as many of its buildings are built from the local grey granite. The stone for the lighthouse was hewn from three types of Aberdonian stone, 
with the foundation being made of the largest block of wrought granite in Britain, an incredibly tough and durable rock. The same granite, in fact, that Queen Victoria's sarcophagus is made out of. Wow, Jenny. So what you're telling me is that mm-hmm. if necessary, Queen Victoria's mm-hmm. sarcophagus could withstand centuries of treacherously rough North Sea weather. Yes, I am, Annie. <laughs> and when <laughs> when London becomes flooded because of global sea level rise, I guarantee it'll certainly last longer than most of the glass buildings there. <laughs> Now, Queen Victoria was actually buried at Frogmore in Berkshire, not in London, so we don't need to worry about this at all, Jenny. Back to the story. But because of this outstanding masonry, and along with the impressive feat of construction in the open ocean, the lighthouse is considered one of the engineering wonders of the 19th century. (laughs) And another curious fact about Bell Lighthouse is that the men who were injured in its construction were given priority to become the lighthouse keepers, which is strangely charming. Though if I'd been injured in my workplace, the last thing I'd want to be offered is to live in that place for a very long time. (laughs) Anyway, there would have been three men isolated in the structure at any given time. Day and night, they would tend to the lighthouse, maintenance, read, play chess... And twister... Enjoy the endless ocean views and, of course, ensure that the light was blazing so that no ships collided with the deadly bell rock. The life of lighthouse keepers has always fascinated people. It seems a juxtaposed life of violent storms and emergency maintenance to peaceful calm days where it seems there is not much of anything to be done. And also a mysterious life as well, as we will soon discover. Mystery. We couldn't mention Scottish lighthouse stories without speaking of the Flannan Isles mystery of the winter of 1900. Now this is a tragic tale that has captured imaginations for well over a century now. Let's go back a wee bit further to the lighthouse being built as the Flannan Isle lighthouse was a mere baby lighthouse when she cooked up the infamous disappearance we all know and ponder. The Flannan Isles are a collection of sea-pounded islands off the far west of the Outer Hebrides. They are also sometimes called the Seven Hunters. The isles are craggy, exposed and treeless. They look incredibly rough, with just a thin skin of grass covering the protruding bony rocks. They're named after St Flannan, and these small remote isles were considered a sacred place. But they were also used by Lewis men to hunt for seabirds and as a pasture for fattening up their sheep. There's also remains of ruined buildings on one of the islands, and they have their own superstitions about them. Now, those mm. are the Clan MacPhail bothies on Elantai, which just means Island of the House. And then there's also a ruined chapel of St. Flannan on the main island, Elan Moor, which just means Big Island. Situated 20 miles off the Isle of Lewis, the Flannan Isles were the ideal place for a lighthouse. 
they were a prime location, especially with the steamers to America now crossing over the Atlantic. And so the 1800s ended with the building of the Flannan Isles Lighthouse, which was completed in December 1899. It sits courageously by the highest point of Aelin Moor, atop 100 foot tall cliffs. Now, this was a very dangerous location for building the lighthouse as materials had to be physically pulled up the cliff. It was, of course, an undertaking by the Stevenson Lighthouse dynasty. It was an ambitious feat of construction and, of course, there were accidents in the building process because it is 1899 and that's what happens. (laughs) And unfortunately, it ended fatally for Billy the Working Horse. Ah, You see, if he'd only broken a leg, he'd be able to be a lighthouse keeper <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> Jenny, that's a heartless joke and I love horses. But what we can see here is that we're dealing with a menacing and treacherous cliff on a very remote island. And that's the setting for our new lighthouse. However, on the positive side... My favourite description of the lighthouse from 1899 was that it would give the equivalent light of 140,000 candles. That is, that's a lot of candles. Did someone have to light that many candles to be like, "Mm, yeah, that's about right. That's about the same. I see that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, uh, yeah, one mighty massive shrine to the sea gods, if nothing else. (laughs) So this sets the scene for our lighthouse in December 1900. It would only have been functioning for about a year when the tragedy struck. Now, the timing is really curious. I did mention St. Flannan earlier. There was a really tiny chapel to St. Flannan just down from the lighthouse. It was a totty wee drystone hut. It looks to have the same inside space as an average camping tent. But it's made of enduring rock and it has some fascinating lore recorded by Martin Martin in the early 1700s. So Martin Martin. <laughs> what was his middle name? Martin. For <laughs> <laughs> such a tiny little ruined chapel, there's some really unusual rituals around it. So before we go back to 1900, Jenny, could you maybe take us back an extra 200 years to the early 1700s, please. I can, but that will cost you an extra 25 quid. <laughs> Island Moor. It has the ruins of a chapel dedicated to St. Flannan, from whom the island derives its name. When the hunters of Lewis are within 20 paces of the altar, they strip themselves of their upper garments at once, and these upper clothes are laid upon a stone which has the sole purpose of this use. All the crew pray three times before they begin fouling. So by fouling, what they mean is that they are hunting the local seabird populations for both meat and feathers. For anyone out there doing Scottish Gaelic duolingo, just think of all the references to salted gannet, the Guga. Well, we did not have your handy duolingo 300 years ago. (laughs) That's for sure. Anyway, the crew pray. When they say their first prayer, they say their prayer advancing towards the chapel on their knees. The second prayer is said as they go around the chapel, and the third is said at the chapel. Good thing the chapel is tiny, else their knees would be in tatters. (laughs) Another rule 
is that it is unlawful to kill a fowl with a stone, as they reckon that it is a great barbarity, and directly contrary to ancient custom, and it is also unlawful to kill a fowl after evening prayers. So I just wanted to mention this lore because St. Flannan's was a place of sanctuary with ancient custom and culture. And the feast day of St. Flannan's is the 18th of December. And it just so happens that it's at this time of year that our mystery in 1900 begins. Our wonderful new lighthouse is operated by three keepers, James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and William MacArthur. Two of these three men were working at the lighthouse for the benefit of their families. Dugget had a wife and four children, and MacArthur had a wife and two bairns. It's easy to imagine lighthouse keepers as kind of being antisocial, or at least that's how they're always portrayed in the films. But these were just folks doing a job in a remote place for the people that they loved. And so they bring us back to our mystery. The first recognition that something may have gone awry with the lighthouse was a note in the ship's log of the Arctur, a big steamer en route from Philadelphia to Leith. The ship's log tells us that despite bad weather, the Flannan Isles lighthouse remained dark. It was not operational at all. When the steamer docked at Leith, concerns were raised, and so the Northern Lighthouse Board decided to check on the safety of the three men. They had really dreadful weather, so they were delayed in sending help. Eventually, the relief vessel, the Hesperus, managed to get through on the 26th of December, 1900. And what they find reads just like a gothic tale. It's strangely haunting. At first, the crew of the Hesperus stayed aboard, trying to get the attention of the lighthouse keepers through sounding their ship's whistle. Hey, over there. You're looking good. You're looking fine. Fancy a date? Nothing? No? Not taking it? No? Hmm. Must be something wrong. Who could turn down this stallion? (laughs) So no one came to the sound of the ship's whistle, though. The relief keeper, Joseph Moore, went ashore in search for the other keepers. He entered the lighthouse through the entrance door into the kitchen and noticed immediately that the fireplace hadn't been lit for some time. He looked into their rooms, but their beds were empty and unmade. He kept on searching, but as each floor he climbed was as empty as the last, he knew that something terrible had happened. There was not a trace of the keepers inside the lighthouse or anywhere on the island, so the Hesperus reported... 26th of December. A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall and the occasional, they've disappeared from the island. On our arrival there this afternoon, no sign of life was to be seen on the island. We fired a rocket, but as no response was made, we managed to land Moore, who went up to the station, but he found no keepers there. The clocks were stopped and all other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows. They must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or or something like that. Night coming on. We could not wait to make something as to their fate. I have left Moore, MacDonald, boymaster, 
and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. Will not return to Oban until I hear from you. I have repeated this wire to Muirhead in case you are not at home. I will remain at the telegraph office until it closes, if you wish to wire me. Master Hesperus. The bodies of the three men were never found. This incident was captured in a poignant poem by Wilfred Gibson. Aye, though we hunted high and low, and hunted everywhere, of the three men's fate we found no trace of any kind in any place, but a door ajar, and an untouched meal, and an overtoppled chair. So what really happened to the three men at Flannan Isles Lighthouse? Local lore tells tall tales, from ghost ships to Jenny's murder conspiracies, and everything in between. But Aliens. <laughs> Aliens took them. But I think it's likely just the simplest answer that they were swept over the cliff and lost at sea. In the folklore from the 1700s that we discussed earlier, there was some intriguing superstition about the language that could be used on the Flannan Isles. For example, it was considered greatly unlucky to even say the name of the islands that they were hunting the seabirds on or the islands that they intended to go to. They never called them by their names. They never called them by the Flannan Isles, or Ilan Moor, Ilan Tai, any of that. And I find that particularly interesting, that the islands were seen as something almost supernatural. They were so exposed in this rugged, elemental place that you did not want to call them by their names. And then there were also words in Scots that the Gaelic hunters would be using to speak about the landscape instead of their native tongue. So they did not speak of the wind and the streams and the rock. Everything had its own Scots name that they would use instead of their native Gaelic. They had a whole language of respect just written for the landscape of the far Hebrides. It feels as though this language was made for the Flannan Isles because they were such a treacherous place to be, because they were so feared, because they had taken lives before. And that's probably what happened to the lighthouse keepers of the Flannan Isles, that it was just a landscape, a seascape, so dangerous that it overpowered them. Unfortunately, though, we'll never know. The true fate of those who were lost in December 1900 will never be known. They saw a flashing light in the distance and decided to emigrate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's actually quite good. It was just their own lighthouse. <laughs> The many Scottish lighthouses that dot the rugged and dangerous coasts of Scotland operate day and night to ensure that all vessels, from jet skis to oil tankers, are able to safely navigate their way around Scotland. The occupation of lighthouse keeper was highly respected, but it was a difficult, technical job 
and they were often completely isolated from family and friends and the rest of civilization. It was by no means an easy gig. But by the late 1960s, the cost of manning over 90 lighthouses with two to three keepers in each one was becoming too high for the Northern Lighthouse Board and they began automating lighthouses in the 1960s. Over the next 40 years, each lighthouse was fitted with automatic capabilities. And so the era of the lighthouse keeper came to an end at the turn of the millennium, with the Fair Isle South Lighthouse on Shetland being the last to be converted. Each lighthouse blinking on the shores of Scotland today, whilst most likely built by the Stevenson Smith dynasty, they lie empty and automated. And although empty, they continue to be maintained by the Northern Lighthouse Board, who do a wonderful job ensuring that our coastlines are both safe and seen. So to end this episode, we have an absolutely wonderful poem by David James Mackenzie, a Scottish poet who wrote this for Good Words for February in 1883. It's a poem quite simply called The Lighthouse. High over the black-backed skerries and far, to the westward hills and the castward sea, I shift my light like a twinkling star, with ever a star's sweet constancy. They wait for me when the night comes down, when the slow sun falls in his death divine. Then, braving the dark night's gathering frown, with ruby and diamond blaze I shine. There is war at my feet, where the black rocks break, the thunderous snows of the rising sea. There is peace above when the stars are awake, keeping their night-long watch with me. I care not a jot for the roar of the surge, the wrath is the sea's, the victory mine, as over its breath to the farthest verge, unwavering and tired, I shine. While standing alone in the summer sun, I sometimes have visions and dreams of my own, of long life voyages just begun, and rocks unnoticed and shoals unknown. And I would that men and women would mark the duty done by this lamp of mine, for many a life is lost in the dark, and few on earth have lights that shine. Oh, Jenny, you've got a light that shines for me. Stop. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Stories of Scotland. Jenny and I have had such a wonderful time diving into the world of lighthouses and lighthouse building. And we hope that you have enjoyed coming on this journey with us. If you have, then please do subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. We also love your wonderful kind reviews. They are a beacon of light in these darkest of winter times. If you would like to help more people hear these wonderful tales, you can share us on your Facebook or your Twitter or Instagram or the person you pass in the supermarket aisle. Or if you'd like to support us even more as we're writing, recording and releasing this podcast, you can go over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland and become a patron of the podcast. We have some new members to our Patreon family so a very warm welcome to Jessica, Robert, Molly and Alina. Thank you all so much for supporting us on Patreon, but also just by listening to our episodes and spreading the word about our podcast. 
we have a fun Christmas episode waiting for the Yule log to burn just a little bit more. But until then, happy solstice. Slanjava. Slanjava.